You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We start this morning with the latest out by the Navy on the Red Hill water crisis. It says the most recent testing and water flushing shows no fuel contamination in the military's water system. This is the second month of a two-year plan to monitor homes and a cross-section of businesses and military installations that were affected by a fuel spill from the Red Hill underground storage tanks. We invited the Navy to participate in the program we had yesterday, focusing on the water situation and the failure to protect our water resources from a fuel leak. We're still waiting on a response, but would like to repeat that invitation, extend it again for someone to join us and answer questions on this very important topic. We continue to get reaction to yesterday's program. Our guest for the hour was Honolulu Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau. In case you missed it, you can find it archived on our website, but Lau told us that he's disappointed with a lack of real detail in the Navy's plan to defuel the Red Hill Storage Complex. And he said the timeline needs to be much faster than the two and a half years that the Navy is proposing. He strongly advocates that whomever is tapped to oversee the defueling process be someone who isn't going to be transferred out before the mission is accomplished. Lau also talked about a continuing lack of transparency on the part of the Navy after learning of a lava tube from those reports that were released that he fears could act as a pathway for fuel into our aquifer. I've been at this for over (laughs) eight years now, eight and a half years. Uh, Come January, it'll be nine years. Uh, This whole issue of transparency has always been a challenge. Uh, they can uh, provide the rhetoric uh, to say that they will be transparent and build trust, but it's really the actions that are not consistent with that rhetoric that demonstrates that uh, they're not being actually transparent and that there may be more information that's available that could be very valuable in looking at what was the scope and magnitude of the problem and what we need to do to recover the aquifer from contamination. And that was Chief Engineer Ernie Lau with the Honolulu Board of Water Supply. We also heard from many of you about yesterday's program. We start with this email. One caller was looking for a word to describe the Navy's initial response. I think the word he was looking for is gaslighting. There's a gross inconsistency between the Navy's position that fuel stored in Red Hill is of strategic value to the Navy and their position that it will take two and a half years to get the fuel out of the tanks. That seems to say that if there is a military need for the fuel, if they start now, they can get it out in two and a half years. Alternately, it is saying that for the fuel at Red Hill to be of strategic importance necessarily means putting our aquifer at high risk every time they draw fuel from it. I'll also point out that the Navy, which after all is responsible for this problem, also has the option to reduce its draining of our water resources by simply not watering their golf courses. The Navy needs to be part of the community when it comes to reducing water use. Thanks, Nobu Nakamoto. We also heard from you on our talkback line, starting with a Navy veteran who was active during the 90s. He shared his firsthand perspective. I witnessed quite a bit of stuff. I mean, not even the Red Hill thing. That was probably going on back then as well. But it was part of a situation where the Navy was dumping hazmat in the uh, Hawaiian waters. And I actually spoke out about it. And uh, was got you know I got in trouble for it, and eventually it was swept under the rug. And I was put in charge of the environmental program and one of the ships that I was stationed on back in '95. And uh, there was a lot of other things that were going on. They were decommissioning the nuclear navy, and they had cores on the docks there, you know, from the subs, hot cores, and they couldn't get rid of them. So during Hurricane Aniki, they had two hot cores on the docks. I mean, that was just a nightmare. People don't know about these kind of things that could have happened, you know, in the past, but they just need to be regulated in general. There's so much stuff going on. And what I'm telling you is the tip of the iceberg, but they just really need to be washed out. You know, they're probably still dumping and doing bad things. They have no cares. It's all about defending us and all that, but they're a cost of us getting, uh, you know, trashing the environment. Um, And that's what, I guess that's uh, what we have to deal with. But, yeah, it goes way beyond that. I mean, if you want to go back to the 40s where they dumped all the radioactive waste off the top of hotel, uh, you could actually see it visually from the Bikini Atoll. And most of the high-level stuff was buried with that for high school was built. You know, Agent Orange back in Vietnam dumped all over. And those 55-gallon uh, drums are bursting and becoming an issue. I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, I did see the, the maps of all the dumping sites, and there's quite a few. And it's mostly ordnance and and chemicals that they had dumped off the coast. But, uh, yeah, maybe somebody uh, can benefit from this or they can maybe uh, keep an eye out. Thank you.
My name is Sharon. I want to point out that one of my clients is a water engineer that the federal government sent someone to him to get a better handle on the situation. And what he conveyed to me is that when he wants to set up another fuel station underground, and he said, which is in a far worse place for our water, it would put Hawaii at much greater risk. Because the Navy has been so um, difficult, they are not transparent, I'm sure that their intention is to move another facility underground and put us at greater risk. How do we protect ourselves against Thanks for the feedback, and we will pass that on. But you can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We just celebrated the 4th of July, but there's something other than fireworks coming to our skies this month. It's a natural phenomenon that happens twice a year, in May and in July, and it only lasts for up to an hour. It happens when the sun passes directly overhead at an exact 90-degree angle, causing objects to cast very small shadows. It's something that's special to Hawaii and only occurs in the tropics, because the sun will never be directly overhead in any other part of the earth. In ancient Polynesian culture, it was considered a spiritually powerful time. People would often pray and make offerings to their ancestors, believing that their response would be maximized at high noon. In 1990, the Bishop Museum gave this solar phenomenon a name. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what it is. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nawit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NawitHawaii.com. Well, the first major election poll is out. And guess who has the lead in the governor's race? Well, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats politics and opinion editor Chad Blair is on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this poll, it's a poll that Civil Beat and Hawaii News Now put out. Fresh off the press, as we say. <laughs> uh, we were in the field last week, June 28th to 30th. And Josh Green, the sitting lieutenant governor, uh, has a commanding lead, 48% in the Democratic uh, primary for governor. Kaike Hale is a distant second, 16%. And Vicky Cayetano uh, is at 15%. So they're, they're neck and neck, if you will. Kahale, the, uh, the U.S. congressman, and Cayetano, the former first lady and businesswoman. We should say that over one-fifth of those that we surveyed and these were likely Democratic primary voters. Over one-fifth, or 22%, said they're not sure who they're going to vote for. But but if you're Josh Green today, less than six weeks away from Election Day, August 13th, as well as July 26th, right, that's when the ballots start going out, if not sooner, the mail-in ballots, you got to be feeling pretty good by the numbers. 
Yeah, and uh, you know everybody's uh, uh, advertising on TV. Uh, I've seen a lot of those ads. Uh, mm. and, uh, you know stories about uh, uh, you know where they stand uh, on on different uh, um, issues. I mean, things could you know. I always am cautious about saying it's it's a done deal because it's just first of all wrong, <laughs> and second of all, it could be a different outcome. Uh, but you know, there are people that that could change their minds. What Kahele and Cayetano have to do is they've got to draw support away from Green, which means to go on the attack against him. And you've seen some of that already mm-hmm. in some of the forums that have been held. There are more television appearances, debates, candidate forums uh, that are coming this month. And, and there, yes, you mentioned the advertising. In that regard, I think Josh Green has the edge because he has so much much money to spend, right? Uh, and even Vicky Cayetano has been able to air some television ads Kahele intentionally said, I'm not going to accept special interest money, PAC money, drawing a contrast to Green, who has who's held multiple fundraisers. But the reality is, is that money does help pay for ads, and that goes into people's living rooms and their social media channels and their newspapers, for those of us who still read newspapers. And, and, and it does add up. It, it, uh, your name is everywhere, in addition to all the sign-waving and campaign uh, posters around town and around the state. Yeah, I mean, I've heard you know lots of comments about uh, Vicky Cayetano's uh, ad featuring uh, a very silent Ben Cayetano sitting next to her. <laughs> Is that the one with the dog? Yes, <laughs> I love that ad. Yeah, I and uh, <laughs> and then uh, someone else who took exception with uh, Josh Green uh, being out in the tarot field uh, in his scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> Did he have the stethoscope as well? <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that were, uh, and Keona Banks Blanks helped me uh, interview folks for this 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 story. And you did hear a lot of people that support Green loving the fact that he's a doctor, feel like that he did well during the pandemic. As you know, there are those that feel that he crossed uh, paths too often or uh, mixed signals, if you will, different signals from the governor, Governor Ige, who, of course, runs the state. Uh, So some people very happy with Green in terms of his medical background, others saying, gee, you kind of got out of your lane. We heard that from a supporter of Vicky Cayetano, who also said, why is Where's all this money coming from? Is, is Green going to somehow be beholden to people? Does he really know how to get bills passed? Of course, he was a state senator and state rep. And then with Kakaheli, one of the people that we interviewed said they like the fact that he's born and raised here. He, he is not from the mainland, uh, as these other candidates are. Of course, many of us in Hawaii are from the mainland. And, mm-hmm. But Josh Green and Vicky Cayetano have been here for, for a long time, too. So, so those are some of the takeaways that are in our story today on well, the governor's race. Uh, on my way to work, I was surprised to see Kaikahele at the corner of uh, uh, was it Eleventh Avenue in um, in Harding, <laughs> Wait, sign waving. Oh, that's right around <laughs> the corner from us. Yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, if you don't mind me plugging, uh, there are four other Democrats that are in this uh, primary. We didn't poll them. We can't poll them all, but we do have a poll running on the GOP contenders for governor, the top six candidates. Anyway, there's 10 people in that field. That's coming out later today, a little hint there. And finally, we're going to do the top Democrats running for lieutenant governor tomorrow morning. And there's more polls to come after that. Congress, rail, TMT, just shamelessly plugging civil (laughs) beat here. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. We'll, uh, We'll look out for that. Thanks, Kevin. That was Editor Chet Blair with today's Reality Check. Check out the poll. Visit civilbeat.org. anyone's guess how the controversial decisions handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court in the last couple of weeks will affect the midterm elections. Here in Hawaii, the primary and general elections are just around the corner. Our analyst, Neil Milner, joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, Chad got us in the mood (laughs) talking about (laughs) politics here. Well, Chad got (laughs) us in the mood, and it's a good mood to get into as far as I'm concerned because it tells how politics and elections are analyzed in Hawaii which is pretty much the total opposite of what I'm going to talk about today, which is the 538.com national political forecast, which does um, builds models and has all kinds of data and comes up with probabilities uh, about 
whether, for example, whether the Republicans or Democrats are likely to control the House of Representatives, whether they're likely to who's going to control the Senate, and how the governor's races are nationally. So what you have is, and, and this is just the first lesson, this is what really got me interested in it, not even so much what it shows. The first lesson is the way we think about, the way we analyze politics in Hawaii is very different and fairly simplistic. You get a couple of polls, you don't get a lot of polls, you don't get them over a length of time. So you now have a sense, for example, that Josh Green is doing really well, just as he did in the other polls, but you don't know what the dynamics are going on. You don't know what factors are playing in there. On the other hand, in Hawaii, you don't have to know that because almost no elections are close. Now, we're, we're you know, I don't want to mix apples and oranges here. What we're talking about when uh, in Hawaii right now is the primary, and primaries are somewhat different. But if so, there's these big holes that people fill here by certain kinds of analysis, and it has a little bit of a of a bias because you tend to think about certain events as being excited, uh, that corruption or certain corruption will change things, abortion will change things. But the fundamental thing to understand about Hawaii is that <laughs> I'll give you a number here: the Democrats almost always win for. The national offices of governor. The, the uh, this is just a little bitty part of the of the five thirty eight forecast. They have the Democratic candidate in the final election in, in two thousand twenty two for both congressional seats has a ninety nine plus chance of winning. Same with the governor, even if you don't know who the candidates are. So. The, the, you, you, that may be somewhat exaggerated if you don't believe in all these statistics, but remember we're solid blue. Mm -hmm. You don't have close elections. I defy people to name a lot of the Republican candidates who are running. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, the grooves are deep. The grooves are deep. <laughs> okay, so that's one lesson you have to – they'll come back to another lesson in a second. Here's the thing to understand. It's a, this is a kind of nerdy analysis, but it's pretty thorough and it's pretty good. They, they take all kinds of data, 538.com. They put them together. They run 40,000 simulations, 40,000 different ways to put this stuff together. And then they come up with some probabilities. So long story short, the probability is that the Republicans are slightly likely to win the Senate, to control the Senate. And this is nationally slightly. It's close to a toss-up. It's they're, they're very likely to take control of the House, uh, as as uh, the data show, eighty-seven to thirteen in terms of probabilities. Uh, that's not that they win eighty-seven percent of the vote. That's the one thing. And those are the the two things that I want to talk about. Those are what's on most people's minds here. If you go through all the data, um, and you put all this stuff together then the, it's very likely that what people suspect is really supported by information. Doesn't mean this can't change, but it means the bigger the difference, the less likely it is. And um, if you're 87 to 13% uh, is equal to being able to flip a coin and have it land, say, tails three consecutive times, it's possible, but it, it's, it's not very likely. So if you're looking for a pretty sophisticated way to think about how the Republicans and the Democrats are doing and what's included in this kind of analysis so that you know this is a pretty good place to go. And they constantly update it. So you don't have the hole in the, in the, in the knowledge the way you do, say, in Hawaii when you have to go from poll to poll in terms of, of seeing trends. Now, Here's the other important question that people ask all the time, and particularly now. Are particular events likely that are happening now strong enough to change this kind of thing? Because the model says what's kind of commonsensical, but we know this. There are two things that affect an election. There's what's called fundamentals, things that you ask all the time, president's approval rating, what the polls overall show, fundraising patterns. You run these things all the time. Those are very powerful, and people tend to forget about them when they talk about elections. They want to know what happens if this guy made a gaffe, uh, um, gaff, what happens when this particular candidate, when she makes a good speech. Okay, so what you want to think about, and this is important just generally, is 
what is that interaction between the fundamentals and the events? Lots of people say abortion is going to mobilize, okay? Or here, corruption is strong enough to change the patterns. There, there are really two answers to that. The closer a race is, the more likely that is to happen. If you know, if if a race is, if if the race is fairly close, that, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing to remember is that there really aren't that many close races nationally. That if you look at toss-up districts, there's just a handful of them. So that's so in in a, one of those races, maybe the abortion decision can mobilize just enough people either way to make a difference. Or gun violence. Yeah, or gun anything. violence or, or here maybe corruption. But the other thing to understand is how difficult that is to do. Um, and, in fact, Democratic pollsters are saying you can't rely on abortion to mobilize the voters for a couple of reasons, one of which is that a lot of the people who would who are are mobilized are already going to vote Democratic. Okay. Um, And another reason is that the other side will do it too, uh, and so on. But I think it's important to understand how much of an election is really about these two factors, how strong the partisan identity is in, in a state, it doesn't lean, how, how much does it lean in a direction? That's fairly stable. Um, things like generic ballot, if people had to choose between a Republican and Democrat, president's approval rating, economic stuff, all that stuff. That's one side. That's a side that gets lost from day to day in the coverage, but it's enormously powerful. And then you have these events, which we hear a lot about and grab at our heartstrings. I mean, abortion is a, is a, a good example. Um they get a lot of the publicity, but the effect that they have on how people vote is pretty problematical because of these other factors, not the least of which that people already identify one way or the other. Yeah, and, and you know, you have the, the, the talk about how, oh, gosh, you know, it's not just abortion, but it's, you know, gay rights and contraceptives. Yeah. And then is that everybody riled up when you get them out to the polls? You know. Well, because there's two sides. Because what it if if you're in a you know if you're in a state um, let's say uh, uh, if you're in a, a heavily you're in a state that's close it's not going to make much you know then maybe you can mobilize if you're in a state where the general vote is sixty percent forty percent for either side just think about the arithmetic how many people's minds you have to change or how many more people do you have to draw into the electorate to actually do voting those are they're all possible that's why you talk in terms of probabilities but the probabilities remind you how hard it is okay so we need to go to the website to check up yeah check out 538.com look at the poll and look at Nate Silver's uh, report of it. It's a little bit nerdy and not numbers wise. It really goes deep, but it's worth taking a look. He's a good writer. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. We've been talking to our contributing analyst, Neil Milner, in our bi weekly segment that we call The Long View. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering a variety of classes and creative experiences at its art school, reopening this fall. General registration begins July 13th. More at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with Chaz Umamoto and Josh Stevens of the band The Bruise. We'll talk about their recent release called Good Catch and find out what technology enabled them to coordinate the recording of the album virtually. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. The Kauai Island Utility Cooperative's expansion plans could mean more artificial light and power lines and greater potential impact on seabirds and waterfowl. KIUC is preparing an environmental impact statement, which includes a habitat conservation plan. It involves filing what's called an incidental take permit for vulnerable birds. What does take mean? Well, to harass, harm, pursue, hunt, shoot, wound. 
kill, trap, capture, or collect, or to attempt to engage in any such conduct, which doesn't sound great. U.S. Fish and Wildlife biologists Koa Matsuoka and Leila Nagatani spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about KIUC's conservation plan. Here's Nagatani. KC was issued a permit for the short-term habitat conservation plan back in 2011. So at least since 2011, they've been actively doing things on the ground, conservation um, activities on the ground. They've been working with, in particularly the Division of Forestry and Wildlife, because at that time, I think all of their um, mitigation areas were on state lands. And then now they're working with a couple um, conservation entities. Halix Ecosystem Restoration is one. And they do the predator control. And then another is Archipelago Research Corporation, and they do all the seabird monitoring. And then another entity that they've been working with for a while, they've been funding the Save Our Shearwaters program, um, which is on Kauai, and they're also known by SOS. They've been the predominant funder since 2011. And through the development of the HCP, they will continue to do that as well. And then SOS is responsible, or they handle taking in primarily seabirds and trying to rehabilitate them and trying to release them. And then their program has expanded. So now they kind of take in other native birds and some of which include the Hawaiian water birds, which KICs um, include into their habitat conservation plan that they're developing now. The birds that they bring in the seabirds are from light attraction. And so it's during that seabird fallout period from like September to December, where um, the fledglings are taking their first flight to to the ocean. And a lot of them get disoriented by the artificial lights, like the street lights or different facility lights. I would say the majority of the birds that they get taken in. And then now that they've expanded, they take in other birds like water birds and like the um, nene goose or nene, because sometimes they get run over by a vehicle or there's cases of botulism. So the birds get sick and then SOS takes them in and they try their best to rehabilitate them and release them back into the wild. And Koa, can you provide a definition of this term take for our listeners? Under the Endangered Species Act, take by itself is defined as to harass, harm, pursue, hunt, shoot, wound, kill, trap, capture, or collect, or attempt to engage in any such conduct. Incidental take in regards to habitat conservation plans means the taking or take is incidental to and not the purpose of carrying out an otherwise lawful activity. So in this context, otherwise lawful activities means economic development, land or water use activities that are consistent with other federal, state or local laws. And for KIUC, the otherwise lawful activity is the operation of existing and future power lines and lighting. That definition sounds a little harsh, but Layla, what impact could awarding an incidental take permit have on bird populations overall? So we have, because we haven't received incidental take permit application yet, along with their draft ATP, and we're still working with them to develop it, like can't really speak to maybe the specifics of the KIC ATP, but just in, in general, I guess when we get the ATP and we look at all the conservation measures that they're doing, as well as looking at the take that occurs and there's different because there's different types of take like some is mortality right and some is in just injury and so the birds are likely to recover and so it's a little bit less I guess severe I guess if if it were to result in a mortality and it also depends on a lot of things like the species and their life history and so like for seabirds right they only um, they take like up to six years to start reproducing and then when they do they only reproduce possibly one egg every year. And then hopefully that one egg leads to one fledgling and eventually an adult. But if you have things that are happening like um, power lines, right? And they, they're either injured or um, if it results in mortality, then, then, then you look at the impacts of what that has. Because if you're taking out an adult, that's definitely a lot more bigger impact on the population than if you're taking out like a younger bird or fledgling that hasn't started reproducing yet just because they take so long to get to that stage of being able to reproduce. And what limits are built into an incidental take permit and how are they enforced? Well, I guess for the definition of incidental take, like we would already know that like upfront as they are applying for their permit and as we've already been working with them. The purpose of KAC doing their work is to provide electricity to the public, right? So their actual reason for doing the project is not to be taking out like listed species. And so that's why it's incidental, right? It's a lawful activity. They're putting up power lines to provide electricity to the people in Kauai, or they're putting out the street lights in order to provide light and safety to the people in Kauai. 
as far as, or any applicant being responsible for the take that they do. All HCPs are required to have different components to it. And a couple of the ones that are important in regards to your question is that they need to do compliance monitoring and effective effectiveness monitoring. So compliance monitoring has to do with the applicant or permittee at that point, carrying out all the different activities that they have laid out in their habitat conservation plan. And so that's like holding them accountable to what they said that they would do. And so the effectiveness monitoring is ensuring that whatever activities that they propose to do in an ACP for conservation measures are, are effective, that they are doing what they're meant to do. Casey will have an adaptive management plan that will have triggers to indicate like something is not being effective as, it, as we expected it to, or when perhaps maybe they might go start to get close to their limit for the take that they requested and what they're covered for in their permit. And so with those triggers, it will lead to actions that KIC will have to implement to make sure that they don't exceed their take or that they make sure that everything that they said they were going to do is going to be effective so that you get to the biological goal at the end um, that is stated in HCP. Um, and then another thing that they're responsible to do is to report annually. And so they'll have all that information in their annual report. And at that time, usually we also have sometimes, most of the times we also meet with the applicant or permittee annually to kind of go over those things and address things that need to be addressed. Incidental take permits are a legally binding document. And so that ties it back to the HCP and that they need to implement the HCP as they indicated, and that was approved. And so if they are in violation of any parts of the incidental take permit, then that means they could be potentially in violation of the Endangered Species Act. That was U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologists Koa Matsuoka and Leila Nagatani. They spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the Kauai Island Utility Cooperative's Habitat Conservation Plan. The deadline for public input is this Friday. We'll have links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. University of Hawaii professor Patrick Hart brings us the song of the modest Hawaii creeper. This little bird is hard to spot, but today we'll hear its call as well as its recently rediscovered Hawaiian name on the Manu Minute. The alavi, also known as the Hawaii creeper, is a small, fairly inconspicuous Hawaiian honeycreeper that's often been overlooked compared to many of its showier honeycreeper cousins. Even its Hawaiian name of alavi was only recently rediscovered when a graduate student at UH Hilo found reference to it in an old Hawaiian language newspaper from over a century ago. Only about four and a half inches long, alavi have mostly olive green or grayish plumage that bird watchers often confuse with other birds like female amakihi. What really sets them apart is their dark grayish colored mask, or lores, that extends from the base of their bill to around their eyes. Also, their bill is much straighter than the slightly curved bill of the amakihi. While they might be hard to find with binoculars, listening for the very conspicuous, descending trill of the males is often the best way to find an alavi. They're also known as creepers because they forage for food by creeping up and down branches and tree trunks, using their straight bill to probe in the crevices of bark in search of insects to eat. They can often be found in the same tree as one of their close cousins, the bright orange Hawaii akepa, which is also an insectivore. While these two birds have similar diets, they share their resources by dividing up where they forage on the tree with the akepa spending most of their time in the leaves on the tips of branches, and the alavi mostly on the trunk. Alavi usually build cup nests in the branches of ohia trees, and by May or June, their one or two keiki leave the nest. For the next few months, these keiki noisily follow their parents around the forest begging for food as they are learning to better forage for themselves.
This constant begging makes them easy targets for their main predator, the eel, or Hawaiian hawk. To help protect their noisy babies, alavi get together in large mixed species flocks with other native birds in the forest, like akepa, amakihi, and akiapolaau. They're also feeding their fledglings around that time. As many as 200 birds can make up these flocks, which can be quite a sight to see as they slowly move among the trees. With only about 12,000 individuals remaining, alavi are a state and federally listed endangered bird species that is found mainly in ohia and koa forests on the island of Hawaii. Like most other Hawaiian honeycreepers, mosquito-transmitted avian malaria is their greatest threat, which is why they're currently only found at high elevations on Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa volcanoes, where it's too cold for mosquitoes and the malaria parasites to live. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked about a solar phenomenon that only happens along the equator twice a year. The second occurrence will happen in mid-July, where the sun will pass over our islands at exactly 90 degrees. The angle causes objects to cast very small shadows and sometimes no shadow at all. For instance, if you were to look at a flagpole at the perfect time, you likely won't see its shadow. About 30 years ago, the Bishop Museum named this time Lahaina Noon, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. The word Lahaina translates to cruel sun. It's a reference to the severe droughts experienced on Maui during the summer. Its Hawaiian name, Kaukala Ikalolo, means the sun rests upon the brain. Lahaina noon occurs on different days across the island chain, and it only lasts for an hour at most, so keep an eye out. We had lots of callers on this one, but the winner today is Travis Sherman from Makiki. Travis, you had the fastest fingers. That's today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Jerry Lopez is a legend in the surfing community, not just in Hawaii, but across the world. He was born in 1948, grew up in East Oahu, and learned to surf at a young age. While in his 20s, he became one of the first to master pipeline on Oahu's North Shore. His innovative board designs helped launch his line of lightning bolt surfboards, which became hugely popular in the 1970s. He's also appeared in several classic films like Big Wednesday, North Shore, and Conan the Barbarian. He's 73 now, and his life is the subject of a new documentary, The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, which premieres at the Maui International Film Festival tonight. The Conversations' Russell Subiono caught up with Lopez at his home in Oregon to talk surf stories. The film starts out with an apology to every person you've stolen away from. I thought that was kind of interesting. Can you talk about why a young Jerry Lopez stole so many waves? Well... Because he was a bad boy. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not like that anymore. You know, Ala Moana was really the place where I surfed the most. And that was hardcore there. The guys there, I mean, the guys before us, when we were young growing up, we thought were the most hardcore surfers everywhere. And, you know, as time went on and, and I became older and, you know, rose in the lineup, so to speak, I really saw that whenever I traveled anywhere else to go surfing, that the level and caliber of surfing at Alamoana was much higher than anywhere else. I mean, I went, wow, we got the best surfers in the world right here, you know, and I, even though I knew everybody out there still, you know, I would, and I got really good at it, just turn around really fast. I mean, fake like I was just paddling over the wave that just whip around right in front of them and, and, take the wave. 
you know, it was still kind of an innocent time in surfing where you could get away with that. And, you know, I mean, if you did it to the wrong guy, he, of course, he was going to slap your head. I mean, yeah. one time Ben Eiplin chased me all the way down to tennis courts. And, you know, the whole way I'll tell him, Ben, you're not going to catch me because, you know, I know I can paddle faster than you. Finally, he got tired. You know, he goes, okay, enough. I go, I'm not going to take off in front of you ever again. And I didn't, you know. But still, there was plenty of guys that I did. I think it's such an interesting way to present you as a character and kind of introduce the arc that you're going on to have that apology at first and then talk about how all these experiences through your life kind of changed you and kind of shaped you into a different guy. And of those experiences that is talked about in the film, what I found most fascinating about your story was how you embraced yoga and the philosophy around the practice. And I know there are physical benefits to yoga, but can you talk about how the mental and the spiritual benefits impacted your surfing? Well, (laughs) I guess... The first time I really leaned on yoga and what I'd read about it and learned of it was in the surf contest when every time I lost, you know, and I was thinking, oh, man. And, you know, I mean, I think all of us, you know, whether we deserved it or not, went into a surfing contest hoping, trying to win and when you didn't, you know, there was some disappointment and, you know, you never felt that the judges were wrong. You just felt like you lost and, you know, that didn't feel that good. And I remember reading at one point that winning wasn't important, but mastering was. And it made me think that, wow, well, I guess if I can master losing, then I'm going to win every time. And that was really the first instance where I had leaned on yoga. But as time went on and, you know, I began to, I don't know, experience more of surfing and my surfing went into bigger waves, dangerous waves, places where there was real fear of drowning (laughs) that, again, I could, from yoga, feel okay, what do I need to do to get past this so that I can continue and not have this fear become a wall that I can't overcome? And I think it was the part where focusing on what I was doing, which is, you know, really one of the most difficult initial parts of getting into yoga that really helped there. And eventually, you know, by staying focused and trying to survive out there in the waves. It was a a long learning process, but I began to understand how that really could help and how it did help me. And, you know, that I could rely on that when I was in a bad wipeout situation, you know, all I was thinking about was air and um, (laughs) I couldn't breathe that by just relaxing I could hold my breath a lot longer and make it a little easier on myself and, you know, not go to that panic place. Most wipeouts are never as long as they feel like when you're experiencing them. And I guess I'm still here to to talk about it. Do you know if other surfers adopted that as well? I think there have been a lot of younger surfers, but, you know, with my peers at the time, I mean, You know, surfing is a very private experience. I mean, even though you're out there in the water with a bunch of guys, you know, when a big set comes and everybody's caught inside, it's literally every man for himself, you know. And in those situations, nobody can really help anybody else. You're kind of on your own. And everybody has a different way of dealing with those situations that are scary or dangerous and You know, everybody, I guess, just survives those situations in a different way. And, you know, some people will talk about them afterwards. (laughs) Sometimes those situations will scare other people and, you know, they give up. They don't want to be in that situation again. 
one of the themes that I picked up in the film as well is it seems like you have this desire to master the things that you're in, whether it's surfing or it's pipeline or yoga or snowboarding. Is this inner drive towards mastery something that you got from your family or do you think it was something that you were born with? I think it's in everyone, you know, mm-hmm. and you just either find it or you don't. But even if you don't, there's always moments, I think for anyone, that it comes out. And hopefully and usually it's it's at the right moment when you need it. But I don't know if that's something you inherit from your family or, you know, you learn from reading a book. You know, you can do all the research you want and that can kind of, you know, show you the beginning of the path that you need to take. But I think it just, at some point, you look inward and it's there. And once you find it, you know, you learn to use it a little bit more. It's something that just kind of fascinates me to watch people do something new and then just continue to work at it. And I just found that pretty interesting as I watched the film at at how there was a lot of things in your life that that you really dedicated yourself to mastering and getting really, really good at. And another thing, as I watched the story being told of the span of your of your lifetime and, and how you, you know, how your experience changed you as you grew older. And what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned in your life that you think others would benefit from? I think the first thing that I learned was from a very dear and, and I thought wise friend. His name was Dave Rockland, and he started a company called Surfline Hawaii. You know, at first it was just a surfboard shop that represented a bunch of different California surfboard manufacturers. It was on P.E. Koi Street. Then he branched out and got into clothing, you know, jams and aloha shirts and all that kind of stuff. But he was a very wise man. And I remember when he was teaching me how to ride dirt bikes, you know, we were wrestling those motorcycles down in some, you know, slippery trails, Helimano or someplace up in the the jungles of (laughs) the country there. And I used to get so frustrated with myself when I'd get stuck, you know, and I couldn't get out and he'd sit there and he'd watch, you know, laugh. And finally, he told me, you have to allow yourself the freedom to fail in order to learn to get through anything in life. And I first I was going, what's he talking about? You know, it took a while to understand what he meant, but I think and I've used that so many times with, with kids, you know, that they get frustrated, you know, and I go, yeah, it's okay. You know, I mean, it, you can't learn anything the first time you do it. Some people can, some people, you know, are just like that, but most people, it takes them a while. And for me, I think we talked about it in the film, it took me a long time to learn everything. Mm-hmm. I thought extra long compared to other people and the only way that you could get ahead to continue the motivation and keep going was by saying, okay, I failed this time, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep going. What's the best wave you've ever ridden? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> the last one. Uh, but I think the best wave for me is the next one because, you know, that's the thing about surfing and any kind of sporting endeavor or anything that anyone really focuses and gets into and is totally concentrated on when they're doing it, that many times, in fact, most times I would ride a wave and at the end of the wave, you know, I'd start blinking and going, wow, I can't remember what happened on that wave because I was so into the moment of riding it that my mind was completely empty and blank and nothing was retained. And I thought about that a lot. And I asked other friends, surfers, you know, and most of them, if they had a good wave, they remembered it. And I thought, wow, I think I'm more focused on my next wave. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jerry. Shoots. Mahalo, Russell. All right.
And that was Hawaii surfer Jerry Lopez talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Well, Lopez is to receive the Maui International Film Festival's Visionary Award tonight. The documentary, The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, will also make its debut at that festival. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Right now, we're going to leave you with the trailer. Jerry's just this mellow guy on shore. And then this tiger shark out in the water. Every kid across America wanted to be Jerry Lopez in a tube. This is Hollywood calling, man. Jerry Lopez went from that pure source to being the most commercialized surfer in the world. Losing focus is easy, but I was born to be a surfer. So I went down to the southern tip of Java. I found the best waves of my life. The solitude of that place really had a profound effect on me. It was a surfing monastic existence. This was the beginning of me and the waves becoming one. The ocean is very yin. The mountains are the yang side, but that's where the stillness is. The whole move to the mountain was part of my path of life. You know, I've come to realize that health and harmony are created when yin and yang are in balance. We're only here for a short time. You have to find some peace within you. That was Jerry Lopez becoming one with the wave. Well, we have to go now. Got a story idea you'd like to share with us? You can leave your feedback uh, on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 